Hi, my name is Chester Elton. I'm a New York Times bestselling author, the apostle of appreciation, and I'm on the Follow Your Dream podcast with the amazing Robert Miller. Everyone has a dream. Robert Miller is a musician who had a dream to become a rock star. He followed his dream and he succeeded. If you're ready to pursue and succeed at your dream, then listen up and get inspired and motivated to take action today. Welcome to the Follow Your Dream podcast. Hi, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Follow Your Dream podcast. I am Robert Miller, your host. My guest in this episode is Scott O'Neill. Scott is a top sports executive with over 25 years of experience with teams in the NFL, the NBA, and the NHL. He's been affiliated with the Philadelphia 76ers, the New York Knicks, the New Jersey Nets, the Philadelphia Eagles. I'll forgive him for that because I'm a Giants fan. The New York Rangers and the New Jersey Devils. And he's been a decade-long member of the NBA and NHL Board of Governors. This man is Mr. Sports. We're going to have fun with this one. And you know, I feature a song of mine in every episode, and I always try to make the song relevant somehow to my guest or the subject matter. And in this episode, underneath the introduction, and then we'll hear it again at the end, is a song that I wrote called Slapshot from the album The Queen's Carnival. And that works. By my band Project Grand Slam. Yes, it does work. This one was easy because Scott has such deep hockey connections, and we all know that most goals are scored by Slapshot. So I thought it worked pretty well, too. Scott O'Neill, welcome to the Follow Your Dream podcast, baby. Robert, I'm thrilled to be here. I love to talk about my dreams, your dreams, and everything in between. Love the work you do. It's inspiring. It's fun, and it makes a difference. I appreciate that. So tell me, when you were young, what was your dream? What did you want to do when you grew up? I wanted to be a point guard for the New York Knicks. We are 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 the New York Knicks. Say go New York, go New York, go. Go New York, go New York, go. Say go New York, go New York, go. Go New York, go New York. Now this was not the heyday. came pretty close. You got in the building at least. You end up being president of the team is pretty good, you know. So there you close. Go. I was kind of in the in the ballpark. Um, but that that team when I was young was uh, Louis Orr and Chuck Robinson and the Human Eraser Marvin Webster. So it was not a powerhouse team, but uh, but it was my boyhood team, and I, I absolutely loved them. All right, but you, you kind of missed them in the '60s when Clyde Frazier and all those guys were doing their thing. Yeah, Bill Bradley and Willis Reed, and that was a heck of a team. That was a great so, team. Yes. No, that was not my team. I'm just a little bit younger now, unfortunately. But, you know, that team and that era was all about team basketball. And I don't know, somewhere along the line, it became like superstar-oriented basketball. And I never understood exactly why that happened. You know, um, that league, the league, the NBA, um, and the game of basketball has given me so much in my life. You know, I worked at the league office under the great commissioner, late commissioner David Stern, and then under the current commissioner Adam Silver, who I worked for as well. And they, they not only changed the world of sports marketing and business, but grew the basketball to be the global sport. 
Uh, I will tell you that the superstar-ish mantra, I mean, you, you look at that Jordan championship when he kicked it to Steve Kerr at the end. There's so many great moments where you just recognize that superstars definitely carry a team, uh, but it takes five on the court and the seven on the bench to make something special. And I, and I think teams like the San Antonio Spurs have done it year in and year out for 20 some odd years with incredible team basketball. You think of the Warriors, the best player on the planet right now, Steph Curry, shares the ball as well as anybody. So I, I think you're seeing a, um, the revolution come true, which is, you know, you share the ball and good things happen. And when your best player is sharing the ball, life is pretty good. All right. Now, when I grew up, and I didn't play basketball that much. That was not my sport, but they didn't have a three-point shot. And that has changed the game completely. So talk about that. What was the theory behind putting that in and uh, the way it's changed the game? You know, it's, it's brought the, the guard back into the game, um, which I love. It spreads the court out, too. You know, these, the, as the guys kept getting bigger and stronger and faster, that court seemed to get smaller and smaller and smaller. So it was, a, it was a way to kind of stretch stretch the defense out, open up lanes, and bring the beauty back to the game. They call soccer the beautiful game, but I don't think there's anything as beautiful as basketball. And you, you've seen the rules change over time. It's, it's, it's been a, been a, a sport, um, not unlike hockey as well, where they, they changed the sport and changed the rules to continue to adapt to the, the changing athlete. And uh, I think those are two sports that have done it the best. In basketball, they took away the hand check. So when I was growing up, the hand check was the thing. And right. the stronger you were, you just keep that guy right in place with the hand. So when you took away the hand check and then they, they started calling the fouls, the aggressive fouls. So it took, looked a lot less like football, a lot like basketball, then stretched the court with a three point line, brought the guard back into the game. And it's become a, just a spectacular sport to watch. It's a different game than I grew up with for sure. Now tell me what would happen if you had guys like, Kareem and Bill Russell and Will Chamberlain in the game today, could they still dominate the way that they did back then? You know, I don't think anybody can doubt Will Chamberlain. He averaged 50 points a game once. <laughs> so that insane. <laughs> and he once, he once joked before he passed away that if he knew triple doubles were a stat, he would have gotten them a lot more often. <laughs> He also, uh, one time, one season, he was getting criticized for not um, passing the ball enough, and he led the league in assists the next year. So I, I think he, he is a generational guy who I think could have played in any era of basketball. He thought, and rightfully so, that he was the greatest basketball player that ever lived. Physically, he was still the most imposing physical player that ever played this league, period. There's no one that's come close to him in terms of just physical prowess. Bill Russell will go down as the fiercest competitor, maybe one of the smartest players of all time, and the best rebounder maybe in the history of the game. With 11 NBA championships in 13 years, Bill Russell is widely recognized as the greatest winner in all professional sports. And so he has skills that I don't, I think translate across the board. Kareem's an interesting one. Hall of Famers Julius Irving and Isaiah Thomas recently said that Kareem Abdul-Jabbar is the best NBA player ever. You know, his body type, his his scoring, you know, and, and again, he's a, you know, I would say that out of, out of all those three, um, and he he's the one who was the NBA scoring champ for years and years and years. So it'd be hard pressed to say, like, if that sky hook could translate or not. It has to, right? Could he do a sky hook from three-point land? <laughs> 
That's what I was going to say is like, you see the bigs <laughs> today. And, you know, I, I had the good fortune of working with Joel Embiid for several years. And, you know, Joel handles the ball like a guard and passes like a guard and can shoot it like a guard. And so it's a very different game. But I, I think the, the, the three guys you happen to mention happen to be, you know, quintessential superstars that I think would have adapted in, in this age. I tell you, there was a very, very funny incident in, in my life. Uh, a friend of mine, his father-in-law was one of the original New York Knicks. Okay. And the first game that I think the Knicks ever played was against Toronto, something like that. So they did like a 50 year retrospective. Uh, and this was, you know, when the guys were still alive from that original Knicks team and they took a photo. Okay. And the photo was the five original Knicks standing next to the five then Knicks. Okay. And you had, you know, five short white guys against five gigantic black guys. I mean, you just saw the, the total change that happened over the course of that 50 years in the sport. Yeah, I think that's with every sport. I mean, I know, you know, having worked with Ben Simmons for, for several years, you've got a guy who's 6'10", 240 pounds, Adonis, point guard. Point guard. Um, so it, it's definitely very different today. But, you know, I mean, it's, it's, we're not too far off from seeing Muggsy Bogues, you know, at five foot three and, and Spud Webb at five I foot I love six. those guys. <laughs> and so, so there still is room for the, you know, Steve Nash was an MVP of the league and he was probably six, three, six, two, slight body, slight build. Um, you see Chris Paul, who's kind of a normal sized human being, you know, a six footer. So I, I think there's still room for extraordinary talents. John Morant is a guy who's like lighting the league on fire right now. He's got like a normal body type, but, but boy, oh boy, oh boy, you can't teach size. You can't teach height. I mean, and, and just when you see their wingspan, that's the thing that always gets me. It's just that long wingspan. It seems to stretch out across the court. It's like playing against plastic man every day. So it's, it's fascinating to see the size and skill. All right. Tell us a little bit about your other sports that you've been involved in, you know, the NFL, the, the NHL. What'd you do there? Give us your perspective on those places. Sure. I worked for the Philadelphia Eagles for four seasons. under Jeff Lurie and Joe Banner there, just wonderful, wonderful leaders. Um, that market is football crazy. You know, it's something like I heard a stat that 75% of the market lives within 15 miles of where they grew up. So when you have that sort of roots, those sort of roots, um, you're, you're effectively taking like the, the passion of Pittsburgh and dropping it into a major city. And that's what you have in Philadelphia. All right. I got to ask this question. When they built their new stadium, did they do it with PSLs or, you know, that's the the, the seat license? Yeah, there's, there were some PSLs. I, I wasn't there during that period, but it's a, it's a pretty common way to fund a stadium or arena build. Yeah, I mean, they were all different. But, yeah, they, they use some PSLs for their club seats. I mean, there's such demand. I, mean, I think that stadium seats about 65,000. I think you'd probably seat a hundred in there. I mean, this, this market is just loves their birds. Yeah. I'm, I know you're right, but you know, I was a giant seasons ticket holder way back when, and when in the old stadium, everybody that was in the old stadium had been in those seats or the seats had been in their family for decades. Okay. And we got, it was like, an, a, a, you know, an old home uh, get together every week. We'd get to everybody in the stands would know everybody. It was just a wonderful experience. Then they went to the new stadium with these PSLs to finance the stadium. 
And it's a completely different experience. First of all, everybody sells their tickets every week on StubHub and all of that stuff. But it changed the nature of what it was like going to the games. It is. It's hard. Um, you know, because being on the other side of that, when you're looking at a stadium that costs $1.4 billion to build, you're like, how am I going to pay for this? I mean, there aren't many organizations or even the billionaires that own these teams that can turn around and write a check for a billion four. So um, you, you get very creative in terms of, of how you can pay for them. I mean, you could do a huge naming rights deal. That helps. You know, you can capitalize that. Um, you know, suites are, are a terrific way to do it. Um, but then the other way to get there is, is through PSLs. And, and it's not, not great. Not as great for fans. Um, and, you, you know, we always in the industry would make the argument, but, but, you know, you own it. There's some ownership to it, but it, it's a tough proposition. It really is. Um, but, but as, a, as an operator, as someone who does this for a living, I can tell you, you don't have a lot of options at, at those numbers. And um, it's hard. It's a hard decision to make. Well, like I said, it kind of changes the nature of the way that the games uh, are for the fans because it, it changes the nature of who the fans are in the stadium. But it is what it is. We can't do anything yeah. about it, right? So, so true. I believe Golden State sold theirs for a million dollars seat on the front row. Can you imagine that? That's almost what the, you have to pay to be front row for the Knicks, isn't it? <laughs> Unbelievable. So I asked Al Palangonia what, uh, what the ticket was. He said $3,400 per ticket per game. And, that, and that's uh, 41 totaling, home to, games to, every to, year? That's a, totaling $299,000 for a pair for the year when you add preseason. Hey, everybody, my Follow Your Dream handbook is an Amazon number one bestseller. It's a combination memoir of my unique musical journey and a step-by-step how-to for you to follow and succeed at your dream. It's available at Amazon and wherever books are sold. Check it out today. Okay, so tell us a little bit about your NHL experience. You know, I, I grew up in upstate New York, a uh, small town called Newburgh, New York. And uh, the extent, you know, I'm a basketball junkie. I still play today a few times a week. Uh, but my hockey experience was really a um, little pond hockey on Chadwick Lake. So I, I didn't have much hockey experience and uh, spent my early career in the NBA and NFL. And I uh, had a chance when I went to Madison Square Garden as president to uh, oversee the New York Rangers, which is kind of the storied franchise in hockey. And I fell in love with the sport all over again. It was like I was a boy. Um, and I can tell you, I remember my first day at the garden, I, I asked uh, one of the senior people there, I said, well, when do we play? And they said, well, we don't play. I was like, what do you mean? He said, I said, well, we don't play on the court. I said, well, we do now. You know, so <laughs> I literally, my second day on the job, I was playing. You know, I was on the court in Madison Square Garden. As a kid who grew up in New York, I mean, you can't imagine how wonderful that is. And a couple of hockey guys were giving me a hard time. They're like, well, can we skate? I was like, why not? You know, so so we uh, we set up some staff games on the ice, and uh, let's I don't know how well you know hockey, but if there were a fifth line, I don't think I would have been on that. I mean, that was bad. <laughs> good hands, good hands could not move. I cannot skate. So uh, really humbling uh, once you get on that ice, then to to sit up eight rows back and watch a game and truly appreciate the speed and size and, and the agility. Skill. 
skates and on skates. It's like you almost can't believe what they do. And so that that was a, a wonderful experience. I've I've since like absolutely fallen in love with that game. I think it's the greatest live sport there is. I don't know how much hockey you've watched, but there's nothing like a playoff hockey game. You know, I was just going to say hockey on TV is a challenge because it's hard to see the puck. Was it Fox that used to have the 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 comet like kind of thing so you could follow the puck? But when you're live, when you're watching a hockey game, you're right. You just you marvel at how good these guys are, how agile they are, and what they can do on skates. It's unbelievable. It was interesting about hockey in the stands is, you know, in basketball, you either want to be in that front row or you want to be 12 rows back. It's kind of, you know, in the center. It's like kind of easy. Everybody knows where the best seats are. In hockey, it's personal preference. Some people like to be in the corner. Some people like to be low. Some people like to be really high. It's, it's, it's fascinating. I, I do like to be low enough where I can feel the power and the hits and the speed, but yeah, high enough up where you can, you can see uh, plays develop. But it, it is a wonderful sport. Gary Bettman, the commissioner, happens to be a, a dear friend, has done a wonderful job in growing that game. When I was a kid growing up in New York, we used to go to the old Madison Square Garden and see the Rangers play. And of course, that was a time when hockey players didn't have helmets. And, you know, you had these teams where guys would have long hair. It was the 60s. It was the 70s. The hair would be flying behind them as they, you know, scooted down the ice. And it was, again, it was a marvelous thing from a point, the point of view of a fan. Okay. Yeah. No, I mean, my, my Rangers were Ron Duguay and, and Barry Beck. You know, and there's there's no more flowing hair than than Ron Duguay, who I actually right. stayed with on the Garden Ice, um, became a friend who's wonderful. And Barry Beck, I believe, is over in in China, uh, running an academy there. Really? So yeah, no, I, I I do believe though that that and not having those helmets on is wonderful because you get to really feel and see the player and get to know them. But it's a that's a that's a hard. Oh, you got to have a helmet. They need helmets. I can't believe that they used to have a a situation where the goaltenders Goalie. didn't have masks. Can you imagine, like, who are you getting to play goalie at that point? Right. I, you know, I'm going to volunteer for that one. Why don't you shoot a puck at like a silver, uh, a rubber bullet, 90 miles an hour at my head? Yes. I, I think it was Jacques Plant had the first mask. And the way that they set it up or painted it, it they like had every part, every part of the mask was where the, the puck had hit at one point. Okay, so right? he looked like a Frankenstein or something. It was like it was like stitches all over the mask. Oh, but you know, think about it, because otherwise it would have gone right into his face. Yeah, no, that's that that doesn't sound like a fun day. No, that would be insane. Okay, so you had you had a life that every kid in America would like to have because you're front and center with all these great three sports. So what are you doing now? You still in there? No, I, I left uh, HBSC in June. Um it was eight years. It was wonderful. I loved every minute of it. Um, but I was ready to, to climb a new mountain. So, um, so I stepped down. I've got to sit out for a year. So anytime you get a year pause in life, it's quite a gift. I had one before after my Madison Square Garden experience. And it's, it's a joy. I, mean, I have three daughters, 22, 18, and 15. So, so first off, just you know, reconnecting. I've been married for 26 years. Wonderful reconnect. When you work 150, 175 nights a year, it's nice to come home and introduce yourself to the kids. So I am coaching high school girls basketball right now. We're nine and one, the Pennington school go, go uh, Red Hawks, which has been a lot of fun. Um, I'm serving on some really interesting boards. I, I mentioned one to you earlier 
one called Sensory, which is this incredible content creator community uh, with AI-powered tech out of the Princeton Innovation Lab. And then a connectivity company that will we'll change the face of, of how we connect. Pretty amazing company. And, um, and, and then a uh, cybersecurity company. So I'm, I'm doing some fun things like that. Um, as you know, I wrote a book called Be Where Your Feet Are, which um, was a bestseller, which is really humbling and fantastic. So I'm doing a ton of speaking around the book. Uh, doing a ton of speaking around mental health. I wrote the book um, after my best friend took his own life, unfortunately. So I've done a lot of speaking around mental health and, and how we keep ourselves um, mentally, physically, spiritually, and emotionally healthy. Fantastic. And um, But otherwise, having a wonderful time. Like, this has been a, quite a treat. All right. I got to ask this question, though. Did you keep all your season's tickets for these different teams? No, nah, no. Nah. You know, the thing is, is when you work for these teams, um, it's different. You lose the, 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 there's some incredible perks and incredible upsides and it's wonderful, but you, you lose what, what others consider being a fan. Okay. So you're no longer a, a fan in the way that you're a fan. You are rooting for the team harder than the fans are because like, your livelihood is um, predicated on how well the team is doing. So, and you also know them personally, you know, the coach is your friend, the players, you know, personally you, you deal with them. So, you're rooting for them. So when a, when a fan boos, for example, you shudder because they're booing your friend. You know, when a team loses, it's not like, oh, shucks. It's like, oh, no, we have to pull this business together. So so you, you lose some of the purity that you had as a fan before you were in this business. Like the only team I'd say I'm a fan of is Villanova. You know, it's where I went to school for undergrad. You know, even that Jay Wright's the coach who's become a, become a dear friend. But I, I've spoken to the team a couple of times and I, I was like, no, I don't want to do it. I just want to be a fan. I just want to root for them. I just want to, you know, I, you know, so I want to yell at the TV. I want to, you know, um, so it's, it's different. Um, when you leave an organization, you need time and space, which is really interesting. And, and something I learned after my last um, exit from Madison Square Garden. It's like, and you'll always love the teams because they're in your DNA and you'll exactly always right. for the people there, you know, everyone from the security guard to the, you know, clubhouse attendant to the trainers, to the, you know, the guys that do all the behind the scenes stuff that nobody knows and nobody appreciates, and nobody cares that you love them. And that's, that's the family that you love. And whether that's in New York or Philadelphia or anywhere in between, you're rooting for the, for the people. Um, but for the, for the teams, it's, it is, it's taxing. I'll tell you, like, it's hard to watch that first season out because you're not there and you can't impact or influence it. Well, it's hard to watch if you're a fan of the Giants. I'll tell you that. <laughs> okay, that's that's been miserable we'll be to back. watch. We'll come back. Well, okay, I understand you got a different perspective when you've been there and you've met everybody and all of that. But when you watch what's on the field with some of these teams, you either want to scream, you know, good or scream bad. What can, what can I say? You know, we we had this expression which we're thinking about. It's like we say. Um, there are two things you can sell or celebrate. It's probably a better way to say it. Winning or hope. And, and winning is the easy one, right? If you're winning or you're a playoff team, and you know. The other 32 teams in the league sell hope. <laughs> that's right. Well, maybe not the other 32, but like, you know, there's some number of teams that are in that conversation that can win. It's going to be, I mean, this year in the NFL, they're probably, it's probably eight deep, you know? So, so you have a good number of teams that are like going for that ride. And then you have the, the new teams in the playoffs, the ones that just emerged, same kind of excitement in the city. The rest of those teams, though, they, they have to, to sell hope. So how do you do that? Well, you, you have to have a plan, and you have to communicate it, and you have to execute on it. 
And so because fans want to believe in something, right? You're a fan, you're fanatic. Like that's hence the, the derivation of the term. And so we, that's our jobs when we're running these organizations is we have to give you something to believe in, something that tomorrow will be better. And here's what we're going to do. Here's our plan. We're going to build the offensive line first. Then we're going to find a quarterback. Then we're going to add skill players. However, however you think you should best build a team. And, and how we communicate that will get you like less anxious. And then you say, well, hey, it's a young team. I'm excited about that. I'm going to fall in love with these guys. And I'm going to ride them up from the ashes. I mean, that, that's something you can, you can believe in. In this funky time, this period right now, which is right after, after the season, right after teams miss the playoffs and coaches are getting fired and GMs are getting fired and it's un, uncertainty and unsettling. It's like it's, this is the time of chaos. And, and in a month or so, you know, they'll have a, a solid I'm, – I'm projecting. I don't know if the Giants will do this, but a, 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 the right GM and the right coach, and they'll be rolling into the draft, and you'll get excited about their draft picks. And then they will write into training camp, and there'll be some bright spots you're excited about, and, and then, then we start to sell. From I mean, your lips to John Mara's ears. Let's go. <laughs> we have been talking here with Scott O'Neill. Scott, you've lived a life that every kid in America would love to live, Okay because you've been involved in all these great sports and with all the great stars and the teams and everything else. And I want to thank you so much for being on the podcast. It's really been a trip to have a conversation with you. It's been humbling to be here. I appreciate it. Thank you. And I want to wish you the best of luck when you, when you get back into the world of uh, professional sports, which I'm sure you're going to do because you can only coach the, the kids team for so long. <laughs> then you're going to get back into the game. I'm sure. And, uh, we are now going to listen again to that song that started out uh, the podcast. As I said, I always play one of these songs of mine at the beginning and the end. This one is called Slapshot, and I want to thank you so much for tuning in, and we'll see you in the next episode. Thanks for listening to the Follow Your Dream podcast. Make sure to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast so you don't miss another inspiring episode. You can connect with Robert at robert at followyourdreampodcast.com. And you can hear more from his band at projectgrandslam.com and at the pgsstore.com.
Thank you.